To paraphrase the Buddha who said, I teach one thing only, dukkha and the end of dukkha. We generally understand or have heard that dukkha means suffering. But we sometimes lose track of the linkage between what we're doing here, sitting on a cushion, and the profundity of what the Buddha was pointing to. So tonight I want to give a cursory overview of how what we are doing here benefits us. To properly understand what the Buddha was pointing to in his uh, teaching of his deepest realization in the Four Noble Truths, we have to look at these Four Noble Truths briefly. The First Noble Truth, and it's important to understand that the Four Noble Truths as the Buddha articulated them, they were merely an articulation of what was observed and what he realized through his practice. It's not like he invented a nice spiritual gig to offer. Didn't kind of like create something that he thought, oh, this is, this is pretty good. It's more like he looked at the reality of his mind-body life continuum and saw what was there. And as we know from the history of the Bodhisattva who became the Buddha, it was only when he first got his, got a glimpse of the fact that we as human beings grow old. We inevitably get sick and we ultimately die. This to him provoked an extraordinary concern and search for how to avoid the suffering of that inevitable process. So after his years of spiritual practices and ultimately finding his own way to what he understood to be liberation. He spoke about his understanding in the Four Noble Truths, the first of which is the truth of dukkha. <laughs> to summarize dukkha is to say, in our life there is pain. In our life, there is insecurity. And in our life, there's no end to the oppressive conditions of just having to deal with life. None of us can deny that. First noble truth. We've seen it in our own life. And while we all have plenty 
to be grateful for. We live at the top of the heap of all of humanity. We in the West who have this luxury of the lifestyle that we do. Everything that you could ask for, and yet we can't deny that there's pain and insecurity and a burdensomeness to carrying on life. When the Buddha saw that, or the Bodhisattva becoming the Buddha saw that, he asked why. Why is this so? And he realized that this dukkha that all beings experience is conditioned by craving. Craving in the form of holding on to what we like, pushing away what we don't like, seeking more of what we think will be of benefit or at least pleasure to us. And we do this in whatever arena of life we look, every arena of life that we look, physically, mentally, socially, financially, economically, spiritually, we seek and hold on. And he saw that it was possible to bring this craving, holding on, to an end. And if one chose to bring craving to an end, then dukkha itself would come to an end. So in the short, if we wish to be free of pain, suffering, insecurity, oppression, vulnerability, stress, let go. And the Fourth Noble Truth, the Buddha offered the path of practice, practices to realize the end of dukkha, the end of craving, through letting go. So we're sitting here. We had a perfectly normal, happy human existence Friday before we started. Now, things are different. <laughs> How did we get here? How did we do that? And are we headed in the right direction? Yes. <laughs> Let me just confirm. Yes, we are. And how do we see, well, first let me just confirm. Is there anyone in the room that has not experienced dukkha? This is, <laughs> is there anyone in the room that hasn't seen holding on in their mind in the form of ideas, thoughts, beliefs, obsessions, preferences? And is there anyone who has not yet seen the benefit of letting go? When we can. Let me point to a few 
experiences that we've had and the trajectory of further development of the mind and how each one of us, even from the short time we've been here, can confirm for ourselves the effectiveness of awareness training to bring suffering, whatever your level of suffering is, to an end. So we come in at all, we sit down, we ask our mind to be aware. It doesn't take long before we notice that we're not aware. Our mind is off in la-la land, playing with ideas, memories of the past, fantasies of the future, other time, other place, other being, who we could be at some other time. And when we're lost in this wandering mind fantasy world, we don't know it. We really are lost. We are not aware that we're living this life. We're not aware that we're sitting, we're not aware that we're thinking, we're not aware if we're a male or a female. We don't, we don't know anything. We're absent to our life. It's humbling to see just how much of the time we are lost like that. It's phenomenal. But by asking our mind to be aware and training as best we can to do that, we see these trains of thoughts and when we do, we come out of it, we recognize, here I am, back, wow. If we never trained the mind to be mindful and aware, would we ever come back? How long could you remain lost? There are those among us, not in this room, but among us, that have never landed yet. <laughs> no, that, that's, that's, think about that. Living a life in total bondage to the fantasies of the mind. Ideas of the mind, not, not here on earth. That is total enslavement to somebody else's conditioning, some conditioning somewhere that, and can't get out of it. But we have seen it. We've, we've all had the experience over and over again of coming back from some thought bubble universe and landing back in our life. And as we continue to pay attention, we see and cut and catch more quickly the kinds of thought-created worlds that we resort to more frequently. I'm sure you've seen repetitive, going back there, going back there, going back there. And we create, we go back to, we, we construct in our mind these ideas of happiness, these ideas of 
how we want to be or what we think would be good based on our conditioning. Well, when I first started um, Dhamma practice 30-some years ago, I'd been out of university for a few years. When I was in the university, I was studying engineering and taking a lot of uh, math and advanced math courses, which at that time were all done with a slide rule. There was no handheld calculators, there was no computers, it was just, and it was a lot of longhand math, or I should say, numbers crunching in the mind. So, I sit down, five years after I get out of the university or so, and my mind wanders off into its habitual mode of being, and where does it wander? Mathematical problems. <coughs> So my mind would wander, and I would come to finding myself multiplying four and five digit numbers in my head, just kind of like a human calculator. And I'd notice that and I'd say, do I need to be doing this right now? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, really? I never noticed before that time, that that's where my mind wandered. But having noticed it a few times, you know, it soon stopped. I caught it pretty quickly. That just really wasn't that interesting. <laughs> but every one of us, having some training and awareness, when we see that we are lost in a train of thought, when we recognize it, we can choose to let go. If you weren't trained in awareness, you wouldn't see it, you wouldn't have the choice, and you wouldn't let go. It's that simple. With training, we have a choice. And we use whatever wisdom we have, whatever knowledge and wisdom we have at the time to make that choice, let go or hang on. It's not difficult to choose to let go of random mathematical calculations. It's pretty easy. But I'm sure you've seen in your mind over these few days other stickier resorts of the mind, not so easy to let go. But that's how the process works. When we see that there's holding on in the mind, we have a choice. We can let go, or we can hold on. This is the essential ingredient of learning to manage stressful conditions. And we all have stressful conditions in our life. They bombard us, you know, personal, psychological, emotional, social, civic, professional, financial responsibilities and obligations and pressures of one sort or another. And they just pile up. And Contemporary media is insistent 
on getting their message into your head. What are you going to do with all that? Well, you need to know how to filter and let go. When you see that your mind is obsessing on something that some shock jock radio head <coughs> commentator was feeding your mind, you can let go. If you don't know that you can let go, that's what you'll be thinking. You'll be parroting the conditioning of your mind. You'll just be mouthing what you heard, what you read, from others. No freedom, no liberty, no choice in it. Our minds are conditioned, and if you don't see that, you act out your conditioning. So this is the essential ingredient, the technique really, for handling stress, handling the conditions that can pile up to become stress. We get to see them and we can choose and let go and save some space in the mind for creativity, personal choice, freedom, if you will. That's the most basic layer of, or level of, the value of letting go. Now, here on retreat, because we're paying attention more continuously, we see more. And one activity of mind that we come across frequently is the obsessing mind. The mind gets wrapped around some desire, some fear, some shame, some self-consciousness, some anxiety, some fearful, depressing thought, and it obsesses. And as you know, the mind can really get obsessive. It can hang on, well, for dear life. And when awareness sees this obsessing, we'd like to be able to let it go. But it's obsessing us because we can't let go. That kind of obsessing is not amenable to intentionally letting go. Multiplying four and five digit numbers, one intention to let go, it's gone. But obsessing anxiously about something, you can intend all you want. It often doesn't let go. Or when you get caught in fear, or you get caught in jealousy, you get caught in envy. <sighs> Intention, good idea, but it just doesn't cut it. So how do we let go of obsessions? How do we let go of obsessing? just as we're doing here. I'm sure you've seen that over the course of the days, you have learned to recognize obsessive states of mind more quickly, to endure them with a little more awareness, and to actually see them come to an end. But it's only through training the mind in continuity of awareness that we can do that. 
if we can't or don't take the opportunity to train the mind in awareness, the obsession comes back quickly and stronger, actually. And so, to put aside the obsessions of the mind or the obsessing activity of the mind requires continuity of awareness. And this takes some diligence, some training, some... During the time of being aware of this obsessing activity of mind, we begin to learn about the nature of these states of mind. We begin to understand, oh, the nature of fear, the nature of jealousy, the nature of anxiety. The obvious question comes up, why do we obsess? Why, why do we pick some memory from the past and, you know, you come on retreat and you think your mind is, you know, you, your mind draw, dredges up memories from the past that you haven't thought of in 20 years. Why? There's pain there. There's holding there. And wherever the mind is holding, there's some pain. It might be reflected in pain in the body, but there certainly is pain in the mind. So one common experience of those who seek to develop a continuity of awareness is what I call personal history review. You can't avoid it. If there's pain in your past, when you start practicing, you'll see that pain. And the mind will scan your personal history, pick out those places where there's still some holding, tension, tightness, pain, and show them to you again. And so frequently, we spend a lot of time recovering memories of one sort or another, identifying the obsessive mental state that's occurring within them, and have to learn how to deal with it. Have to learn how to come to terms with, you know, the, well, the dysfunctional family dynamics that we grew up with. And we all had a difficult childhood. It comes with the turf, you know. It's not that our parents weren't doing the best they could, they, most of them do. But our needs as a human being are more than our parents can offer. So we end up feeling, you know, lost and abused and frightened and insecure and neglected and whatever. And we have to deal with all those, well, emotions. Recovering our own life from personal history. This is not easy. I grew up with an alcoholic father. And, you know, when you grow up with any parent, it's the only one you got, or the only two, or sometimes you have four. But that's the only one you got. This, th it's normal. Whatever's going on is normal. That's the way it is. That's how it is for you. I did not, even though I saw my father drinking, 
I did not realize that he was alcoholic and its effect on me until I was a monk in Burma at age 36. I saw it, but I didn't realize it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know it from the inside. Then, at that time, here I am. My father's long since passed away. I'm in Burma, and, well, my father issues come up. And it's just like incessant. There's no denying. There's no avoiding. I can't go to him and rant and rave and blame and anger and scream and shout. He's not there. It's all here. It's all here in our own hearts, in our own minds. And so to recover our own life, we have to uh, accommodate. We have to confront these feelings and come to terms with them within ourself. It's not coming to terms with them out there. I could have done all the processing I wanted with my father, all the psychological uh, groundwork, if you will. And that can be helpful. But until my own heart, until my awareness brings my own heart to the pain, to the, the crux of the issue, if you will, and comes to terms with it in here, will I be able to forgive him? And real forgiveness is not so much, I forgive you for hurting me, or, or whatever it is. It's when our awareness sees and can acknowledge the sense of self that was conditioned at the time of the pain. and forgive ourselves for getting attached to it. It really doesn't have anything to do with the other person. Can we let go of that sense of ourself being abused, being hurt, pain, lonely, neglected? As I said, when I came to that understanding, when I saw my own process of reclaiming my life, my only thought about my father was, I understood he did the best he could. It was, <coughs> well, by all objective standards, terrible. <laughs> but he did the best he could. I couldn't change him. I can only change myself through seeing and letting go. This is how we really recover our own life. And we all have something in the past. It doesn't have to be with your parents, it can be with your first lover, it can be with your current lover. We got stuff. We've got parts of ourselves entangled in memories. And those memories are a constellation of conditions giving rise to a sense of ourself to which we're attached. Maybe out of fear, maybe out of anger, maybe out of blame, maybe out of jealousy. But that sense of ourself that was conditioned at that time, we're still identified with, we're still holding on to. Until we see that, that sense of self, feel where that came from, and let go of that feeling 
can we then let go of you know, the blame, the hurt, whatever. <clears throat> this is the work we do in here, in our own heart. This kind of work brings us to a place of being emotionally intelligent. We know our emotions, we know where they come from, we know how they feel, and we know how to handle them. And until we do that and recover the emotional terrain of our heart, we're kind of cut off, we're kind of only half there. We're not really able to bring our full emotional life into the present, into any relationship in the present, because it's all tied up in the past. And when we have a lot of ourself tied up in the past, we don't have much energy in the present. But every time we recover a piece of ourself that's tied up in this past entanglements, the energy that was used to hold that sense of self in place is now available in the present. And so one of the results of uh, effective practice is increasing energy. And emotional, uh, the ability, I guess, to acknowledge uh, the range of emotional terrain that our heart is capable of. I mentioned earlier in the retreat when I was growing up I had one emotion. That was it. Moody. If I wasn't kind of happy, I was moody. Well, I have since recovered. <laughs> I <I'm, I'm laughs> have been in recovery for 30-some years. You know, now I have two. <laughs> moody and not moody. No. Uh, but actually, it was a, 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 an amazing enrichment of life to wake up to pain, to wake up to dukkha, was amazing to me, uh, enrichment of life. That's a second way that we benefit from awareness practice. A third way that we benefit from the practice we've been doing when we're able to put aside the obsession, obsessing mind, the identification with you know, the aversive, judgmental, craving states of mind, we begin to come into balance. We begin to develop the wholesome factors of mind to the point where they are predominant over the unwholesome factors of mind which are habitual. And the, predominant, and the wholesome factors of mind that get developed we identify in this tradition as the seven factors of awakening. Seven factors of awakening involve three that are energizing, three that are tranquilizing, and the seventh is awareness itself. The three energizing qualities of mind are energy itself, raising the mental energy, joy or delight or interest 
in the mind, and investigation, and this is really a form of wisdom, understanding the mind. These are energizing qualities of mind that get activated through our awareness practice. The tranquilizing qualities or factors of mind are calmness, learning how to be calm in the face of whatever it is you're aware of, collectedness, how not to lose the thread or the continuity of awareness, no matter what you're facing, and then equanimity. Equanimity is the uh, balance of the mind or the non-reactivity of the mind. Now, to keep these energizing and tranquilizing factors in balance is the job of awareness itself. It's not easy. <laughs> and we see that when we become aware of different experiences in the body, in the mind, in the environment, in our relationships, oftentimes we have a very strong reaction of attachment, fear, excitement. And when we have an unbalanced reaction, we lose awareness. And so, practice, more practice, we learn how to come to a more balanced uh, relationship with, well, everything that arises to be known. So of these energizing factors, energy, of course, is, is one. And I mentioned earlier that the Buddha spoke more about right effort than any other topic, or it's reported that he did. But this is really talking about the energy of the mind. And one of the things I've noticed about practice is it's a gradual training of our mind to endure the intensity of energy in the system. We have a tremendous amount of energy in this mind-body process. And to open up to it suddenly, to just go, if you could, well, you know, it'd be something like uh, flicking a circuit breaker. And things would shut down because it's so intense. So only gradually do we, you know, even here in these few days of retreat, there are times when the energy just gets too intense. And we have to go blow it off somehow kind of walk outside, go for, you know, kind of get out of the box. Because to stay in this container, paying attention, following the schedule, builds up a tremendous amount of energy in the mind. And it's not easy to, it's not easy to hold. And so, you know, we, it feels like restlessness, it feels like you gotta jump out of your skin, it feels like it's just too intense. So part of the, the process of, um, Growing awareness is to learn how to handle uh, this level of energy. As I mentioned, every time we let go of some, something we've been holding on to, all the energy that was involved in holding on to it is now available in the present moment. 
But that's the energy that we need in order to be continuous and to stay open to more, or the continuity of what's coming. Investigation, uh, uh, joy, I want to speak about joy first. It starts with a, a level of interest. You know, if we're interested in looking, it, interest itself supplies energy. But there's a place in the mind where if we look continuously, and in that we put aside the hindrances that hinder the development of the mind, when the mind can do what it does, which is to know, when the mind can do what it does without hindrance, it takes great delight in knowing. Even if what is being known is painful. This is, this is joy. This is mental joy. This is not the, oh boy, aren't I happy joy. This is the mind's functioning becomes joyful. It's unsuppressible. You cannot keep the joyful mind down. And it ranges anywhere from feeling thrilling and lit up to uh, ecstasy to uh, pass out level of ecstasy. You think drugs are good? Or maybe you don't. Joy in the mind, a more better. Really, it is, well, <laughs> I'll say it. It's like full body orgasm for hours at a time. That's a lot of energy. All because the mind is doing what it likes, knowing without hindrance. This is a capacity of the mind that we will access and open to and develop if we keep practicing. Can't be avoided. I don't have to promise it to you. It's, it will happen. But that's just, well, as I said before to some group, that's just a spiritual, that's just a scenic turnout on the spiritual journey. It's not the goal. It's not the destination. It happens, but it's just not. It's, well, as soon as it arises, it becomes an obstacle. Because we want, we want to stay there. We want, we want to make a home at this uh, turnout. But there's no toilet and no job, so <laughs> can't stay there. But that kind of energy in the mind is very uplifting, very energizing. Of course, you need the tranquilizing factors to keep it in balance. And then investigation itself is, the, is not thinking about what we're experiencing. It's actually looking in such a way as to see and understand what it is you're looking at. This is a very energizing uh, quality of mind. So we have energy itself, we have joy to the point of ecstasy, and we have the uh, investigation, the, the delight in knowing, really, what is going on. 
with all of those three energizing factors, you need the development of the tranquilizing factors to keep them in balance, because an unbalanced mind is, well, unbalanced. So calmness is the first of the tranquilizing factors. And part of the format of a retreat, of just routine, nothing to do, slows everything down. It really slows down the body. We're not running around. We don't have to accomplish anything. But all that serves to tranquilize the body and tranquilize the mind. The mind's not looking for more distraction, more excitement, more stimulation. There's plenty inside already. And so by subscribing to the format of the retreat and practicing with continuity, tranquility is also aroused, the same as energy is aroused. So they, the trick is to keep them in balance. Collectedness of mind, the second um, tranquilizing factor is really uh, what we call concentration, collectedness of mind. It is that, and several people were mentioning it in group, some of the groups the other day, it's that space of mind where you kind of drop in, what we call dropping in. You kind of, you're going along, you're going along at a certain level, and then you just, you drop in and you're just there. It's like, you don't have to make so much effort. Everything is kind of smooth, kind of still, uh, very pleasant, <coughs> very soft, and you're just cruising. That's how you'd have to put it. You're in overdrive. You know, you just kind of, cruising along. And that is a very pleasant state of mind. Most often it's what we seek in practice. When we come to practice and we want to chill out, we're looking for that. Samadhi and tranquility. That too can become very seductive. We can get so fascinated with tranquility, calmness, and samadhi that just like we can get attached to and want to play with joy to the point of ecstasy, we can get attached to and want to play with tranquility and calmness, or tranquility and uh, stability of mind to the point of jhana, which is absorption in tranquility rather than absorption in ecstasy. Absorption in tranquility. It's equally seductive. And so keeping those two in balance, the joy and the uh, tranquility or, or concentration is part of the practice. But these states of mind are just delightful. They are a freedom from our obsessions, freedom from stress, freedom from delusion in that there's a lot of clarity in the mind. This is wonderful. It's not always available on a six-day retreat. But nevertheless, as we develop uh, continuity of awareness, they will become more apparent and more available. This um, development of the seven factors of awakening leads to what I said is a balanced mind, where the mind is then no longer afraid of anything but no longer overly excited about anything either.
there's a whole list of the qualities that come with the balanced mind where one remains stable, serene, and calm. One is no longer vulnerable to any form of temptation. There's no extreme delight in pleasant experiences. And one remains uh, tranquil, and the mind remains clear. The mind is able to tolerate the extremes of pleasure and pain, praise and blame, uh, fame and disrepute. No matter what comes up in the mind, no problem, can handle it. And one has uh, developed forbearing patience to all kind of challenging experiences. The stamina, one's stamina to endure is uh, ceaseless. You can endure anything. This is, this is the quality of the balanced mind that comes just from practice. So having that quality, having access to that quality of mind while on retreat and being able to access it in your daily life would be a tremendous benefit. Gradually, practice makes it possible. As I mentioned though, along the way, we come across these spiritual goodies, what are called spiritual goodies great calmness, great delight or ecstasy, piercing clarity, unsuppressible faith, effortless, endless energy, uh, non-reactivity to anything, simmering happiness, happy comfort of mind and body. These are all uh, what are identified in different spiritual traditions really as, for some of them, the goal but in Buddhist understanding, they're the inevitable result of purifying the mind and their spiritual goodies. They come through no invitation of your own. If you practice well, they happen and they become an obstacle because they're so seductive, we, will, we get attached to them. And so the challenge for us is to acknowledge them, taste them, and let them go. It's hard. It's hard to let go. Because it's what we look for. That's what most of us came to meditation for in the first place. Calming down. Getting a little clearer. Maturing a little bit. Growing up. Kind of being able to be a little more balanced. Handling our stress a little better. This state of mind, these states of mind give you everything and more than you ever imagined. And so the challenge then is to refine your understanding of the goal of spiritual practice. If you think it's only to uh, <clears throat> handle your stress, you'll stop there. If you think it's only to deal with your obsessions, you'll stop there. And so we really need to refine our understanding of what the potential goal, or what the goal and the potential benefit of spiritual practice can be. And when we let go of um, the spiritual goodies, if you will, then we can mature in our uh, spiritual understanding. This opens the doorway to, well, the understandings of insight, 
the liberating understandings of insight. Last night I spoke about the understanding of the impersonal characteristic of phenomena. How ephemeral, evanescent, insubstantial, impersonal, it all is. This is an understanding. It's not so much an experience, but it's an understanding that if we grok it, if we get it, and we see that all of life's experiences are like that, have that characteristic, then the mind doesn't reach for to hold on to anything. We taste, we experience what's happening while it occurs, but there's no reaching to hold on to it, to hang on to, stash it away, so to speak, because the mind knows it is insubstantial. And so the mind doesn't reach. And if there's no reaching and no holding, there's no dukkha. Another understanding that comes through insight practice is understanding that everything is impermanent. This is understanding not in the head. We know in the head, conceptually, that everything's impermanent, everything changes. But it's knowing in your heart, knowing in your mind, so that in every moment, whatever the mind has picked up, or whatever has arisen in the mind, we know, or wisdom understands, this is impermanent. This is not going to last. And so the mind doesn't reach for it, doesn't reach to hold on to it. It experiences it, it tastes it for as long as it's there. And when it leaves, it understands this is its nature. There's no, there's no grieving the loss, there's no holding on, there's no yearning to get it back. It's well understood. This is its nature, and we don't struggle with nature. When the mind has this understanding, there's no holding. And if there's no holding, no grasping, no clinging, there's no dukkha. The second, or the third understanding that comes through insight practice is the understanding that all phenomena, all experience has the characteristic of dukkha. It is either painful, painful or not. If it's not painful, or even if it is painful, it's unstable. It doesn't last. And so even something that is pleasant now, financial security, uh, prestige, position, relationships, whatever, is stable now, it won't always be so. When we understand that, we don't reach for anything. We can experience, we can derive the benefit from anything, everything, but we're not holding on to it, so that when it changes, as it inevitably will, we don't suffer. We accept this is its nature. So this understanding of impermanence, uh, dukkha, and the understanding of the insubstantiality of phenomena. These are liberating understandings. We can read about them, but they're not in here. They're only an idea. When we see it in every moment of our awareness, 
when we realize this is the way it is in this moment, no holding on. Life goes on just like it is now. You have your job, you have your home, you have your relationships, you have your bills, you have, you have everything except the suffering. There's one further potential benefit to the practice of awareness. When the mind is balanced and deeply understands these three characteristics, that all things are impermanent, all things are insubstantial, all things are unstable, and the mind is not reaching for anything, it is possible then for the mind to access the unconditioned, not conditioned by anything, not created by anything. And this is Nibbana. And the Buddha spoke about Nibbana as a reality to be realized by each one of us. It is a reality. It can be realized. It is characterized as the happiness of peace. Not just tranquility, not ecstasy, not pleasantness, not bliss, peace. It is available. It's not only for monks and nuns at the time of the Buddha. It's not only for people who go live in a cave off in the Himalayas for lifetimes. It's not for that. It's for each one of us in our Western lifestyle as a householder. It is available if you practice. It will change your life. That's why we practice. For all of these benefits. And while practice is not easy, Bearing with dukkha isn't easy either. The Buddha said there are two kinds of craving and holding on. There's the craving and holding which leads to more suffering, and the craving and hold, or the, the, the holding that leads to the end of suffering. You know, if I asked you to squeeze your fist, and squeeze your hand into a fist and squeeze it as tight as you can after 30 seconds, just starts to ache, after a minute it goes numb, after five minutes you don't feel it anymore. Right? So there's this suffering of aches and holding and tightness and numbness and well, after five minutes you're not aware of it. You're not aware that there's any suffering in the hand. Right? And then somebody says, open your hand. And you go, ah, ah, ah. ouch, all the aching, all the stiffness, all the numbness comes back. huh? More pain, but this pain is the pain that leads to the end of suffering. Because once you open your fist, open your hand, no suffering there. This is the pain that leads to more suffering, the grasping, the holding. The opening and letting go is the pain that leads to the end of suffering. And so whatever pain, whatever challenge, whatever difficulty you've had with your mind and your body this week, it's the pain that leads to the end of suffering. Not the pain that leads to more suffering. 
And if you continue to practice in this way, you can let go of everything. The Buddha said of his teaching, the purpose of my teaching the holy life of the Dharma is not for merit, it's not for good deeds, it's not for rapture, it's not for concentration, it's not for insight, but it is for the sure heart's release. So let's sit for a moment and let the words quiet down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.